In recent months, the Biden administration has thrown its support behind litigation and new legislation aimed at combating monopoly economic power in industries ranging from technology to pharmaceuticals to agriculture. Biden's also appointed champions of renewed antitrust enforcement to key federal positions, and he recently issued a major executive order on promoting uh, competition in the American economy, uh, one which actually throws the whole weight of the entire government behind these efforts. What are the premises and the deepest motives behind this renewed push for antitrust action in America? That is a question we are going to discuss today. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, today, we're going to discuss the topic, the pure hatred of the new antitrust. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute, and with me is uh, my colleague, senior fellow, Ankar Gatte. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. Good to be here. So last week, we, we had an episode of this podcast talking about Jeff Bezos and his trip to space and why he had garnered so much hatred uh, for that. Uh, this is a topic that I think naturally raised questions in lots of people's minds about the nature of his uh, the, of the business success that propelled him to the point of being able to do something like launch a rocket. Uh, that success has done a lot more than just target him for criticism for his space travel. It's also targeted him for a, this kind of antitrust litigation. And there is now a new push on behalf uh, of the Biden administration to undertake that. Um, so I thought, Ankar, one thing we could start by doing is just uh, bringing our uh, our audience up to date on uh, the the current context and the news about this. Some of it, a lot of it has not been in the headlines. So you've had to be following it to see the trends, but there's, there's actually quite a lot that's been going on. Um, it, it started really in March with uh, the nomination when Biden nominated Lena Khan who is a Columbia law professor, uh, to be the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. Khan is someone who had made the news uh, earlier years for having authored a very influential article in the Yale Law Review calling for the reform of antitrust law. What she argues, and we'll talk more about some of the claims of her argument in this podcast, is that modern antitrust law hasn't kept up with the latest developments in the digital economy, uh, in which network effects can consolidate and amplify the power, the economic power of uh, many of the big tech corporations. She argues that the fact that uh, consumers get uh, the services from these tech companies for free or even for, uh, for cheap or even for free doesn't make a difference because companies, especially companies like Amazon, her article's Amazon's antitrust paradox, uh, are able to exercise all kinds of new forms of what she calls predatory pricing, um, even if they don't end up raising prices on consumers later. The Senate confirmed Khan's appointment to the FTC chair uh, on June 15th. And after that, a whole series of new uh, antitrust actions came down the line. Under her leadership, under Chairman Khan's leadership, the FTC voted itself the power to regulate companies uh, with regard to privacy law violations without having to bring in an administrative judge, which had been uh, the, the president up until then. This gave uh, in, the, uh, Chairman Khan uh, exclusive discretion about whether and how to prosecute uh, for these offenses. Uh, she has the power to issue her own subpoenas, uh, another unprecedented action. And uh, it, 
in doing this, she also signaled that uh, the end to an Obama uh, era statement and policy that the FTC would follow the Supreme Court's interpretation of antitrust law, which for decades prior had been moving in the direction of saying, if uh, corporate consolidation or if uh, economic power doesn't in any way adversely affect the consumer, uh, then there is a presumption against, against taking action. This is called the consumer welfare standard. Um, and so the Khan is announcing the FTC's intention basically to repeal this consumer welfare standard. July 9th, President Biden then issued a major new uh, sweeping executive order, uh, which was called Promoting Competition in the American Economy. I'll just read here uh, a couple of quotations uh, from this uh, statement to give you a sense of what it's going for. He says, it's the policy of my administration to enforce the antitrust laws, to combat the excessive concentration of industry, the abuses of market power, and the harmful effects of monopoly and monopsony. It's also the policy of my administration to enforce the antitrust laws, to meet the challenges posed by the new industries and technologies, including the rise of the dominant internet platforms, especially as they stem from serial mergers the acquisition of national competitors, the aggregation of data, unfair competition in attention markets, surveillance of users in the presence of network effects. So it's, it's almost as if Khan's law review article was the manifesto that's now uh, influencing the uh, influencing political uh, decisions at the highest level. Um, I could go on actually to list uh, more appointments and uh, more legislation that's now pending before Congress and how it's, bi it's a bipartisan effort. It's not just Democrats, it's Republicans like Josh Hawley and Ken Buck too. Um, there's state lit litigation uh, on behalf of a variety of states who are trying to uh, sue major tech companies for one form or another of allegedly anti-competitive practice. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, Ankar, any preliminary initial remarks on this whole raft of uh, efforts on behalf of antitrust? I'll make three points briefly. So one is what you highlighted, but I, which I want to stress that this is the norm. So part of what you highlighted now is that in the last couple of months, what has happened at the political level, appointments of chairmen to the FTC and so on. But what you said is that this is coming from an academic perspective and an academic push. And what people usually see is when it reaches the political level, oh, look at who's been appointed to the FTC, look at the Biden's latest executive orders. But as you said, it, and I think it's true, when you read Khan's article on Amazon and you read these executive orders, it almost sounds like they're taking paragraphs from that academic article and putting it into the executive order. And that's how these things work. There's a real academic push in um, by law professors to revive the antitrust laws. So going back to the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, there was a period of time, which from their perspective, and I think they're right about this, that antitrust suits were brought against big business more regularly. So the government's regulatory or control over businesses had more bite or had more teeth up to about the 1950s or 1960s. And then there was a weakening of antitrust law and the, the desire and ability to bring suits against companies. 
And they're trying to revive that power. Um, so it's an academic push. It's a very important issue. Ayn Rand in the 1960s was um, stressing that of the political dangers we face, one of the greatest is antitrust. He really singled out two, antitrust as a massive interference with economic freedom and various censorship uh, controls of government over speech, including by, by uh, various federal agencies, that those were the two things to be most concerned about because they go directly to the heart of economic freedom and intellectual freedom. And indeed, what we're witnessing now is they're intertwined. And this comes out in Khan's paper. What they're trying to limit, uh, or what they're trying to control in part, is the political speech of these major companies. And then I would stress that these are major companies in the US. Indeed, these are our best companies. They're the companies that lead the world. Facebook, Amazon. I mean, just think of the FANG stocks. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. These are the targets of the suits. So they're the best companies. And what is really taking place, I think, is that they want to limit the freedom of these companies to operate, that they want for many, many more decisions these companies make. They need the permission of a bureaucrat to make it, or they face the threat we don't like what you're doing. We might bring an antitrust suit against you guys. So you're better off just to do what we want you to do. So it's an enormous amount of freedom is at stake here. And part of what's ominous about it, it's being pushed as this is a way to restore freedom. And the, it just shows the massive confusion there is about what freedom actually consists in. Yeah, and if you, if you look at this, a latest Biden executive order. It's got 72 different initiatives across numerous sectors of the economy, uh, dozens of industries. And if you read the whole thing, it's, it's, it's kind of mind numbing to read the whole thing. But if you force yourself to do it, it, it really gives you the impression of a government that is bent on planning every sector of the economy, or at least of being the one to pick who's the winner and who's the loser. Uh, and so with, with, a, with an initiative as intrusive and active as that, yeah, you have to wonder uh, what is it they're trying to accomplish? And as you, as you suggested, there's what they say they're trying to accomplish, uh, something in the name of, of quote unquote freedom. And, uh, but then there's a question, well, what are they really trying to accomplish? And I think to get into that, um, it's, it's worth uh, trying to look at the proposals at least on their own terms, what they say they're trying to accomplish. And you spoke, Ankar, about how there's this sense that uh, antitrust had gotten too weak, um, that this consumer welfare standard ha has uh, somehow wreaked havoc uh, with the economy. If you read the Khan article, uh, one of the things that she argues is that, the, that this, this recent interpretation of antitrust law has looked too narrowly at uh, consumer prices and uh, the deliverables of goods and services. She argues in effect that that is too narrow of a view. You have to take a wider view of the whole, a whole variety of factors that contribute to the so-called public interest. I think it's instructive to look at some examples of the kinds of claims she makes and the 
the quality of the evidence that she gives for them to see, well, is it really about that or is it is it something else? And so- Yeah, as a preface to that, I think it's worth noting why it is that she's looking for other things because she knows full well that if you focused on prices, well, Facebook you use for free, um, Amazon has super low prices, Google services you use for free. So to try to make an argument that these companies are screwing us through prices, it's just not plausible. It's not plausible to the average person. They're, it's too obvious to them that, no, I get tremendous benefit and a lot of it's free from these companies. So you need something else. And then it's, okay, what is the something else? Yeah, and I mean, she she admits this like upfront in the article. She says not only that are the prices low, and and uh, there are many different products, but people love these companies, and that's part of why the article is Amazon's antitrust paradox. It's paradoxical that a company could be so well loved, and yet intent on some devious activity somehow. And so uh, it, you mentioned, yeah, the, the she can't possibly appeal to prices. So she says, well, but uh, even if they are even if they've got low prices and even if they're in certain ways using loss leader sales, uh, they, they have some way that they can make up for it in the end. Um, and she doesn't give a specific argument as to what that way is going to be. Um, she says things like, well, they'll use personalized price discrimination, but, that's, but we'll never be able to prove that it's happening. Uh, if it's unprovable, you've got to wonder what exactly the nature of the problem is. Um, and there's a whole lot else that she points out, which I think on her part is also going to be unprovable. Um, she talks about how uh, price isn't the only factor that matters. This is quality, variety, service, innovation. But here again, it's hard to see how Amazon fails on any of these fronts. It's, it's got a huge variety of quality products and has uh, offered all kinds of innovation. We'll mention some examples shortly. Uh, she gives the, you know, the one example that she gives where it's it's kind of semi plausible. She talks about book publishers, and of course, Amazon started out as as a as an online bookstore. And uh, one of the things that has resulted from that is is forcing prices of books down because they're able to negotiate in bulk with the publishers and the publishers have to keep a low price if they're going to keep selling on Amazon. And so she argues, well, what this means is because the publishers aren't making as much, they're not going to be able to cross subsidize their kind of niche risky titles. This, is, this used to be the business model where they would have you know, bestsellers and then they would use that to support unknown authors, et cetera. Uh, and she, she argues this is going to contribute to a lack of diversity uh, of viewpoints uh, in the publishing marketplace, which if you ask me, is a point that is that is so detached from reality. When you look at the kind of publications that are offered on Amazon, that it's it's it strains credulity. I mean, anybody can self-publish on Amazon. There's 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 thousands of different fringe titles. You know, uh, most of which never get removed, even when they make outrageous claims uh, on Amazon. And so, yeah, it might be true that the big publishing companies don't end up getting to have these. Uh, niche risky titles, but everybody else can still publish them. And that speaks to your point, Ankar, about uh, how there is behind the scenes here uh, an implication not just for economic freedom, but for intellectual freedom, because she's got an idea of what kind of books she thinks should be published by major publishers. Amazon's not doing it in the way that she'd like, 
Therefore, there needs to be legislation in order to introduce the kind of variety of titles by the kind of publisher she likes. Um, there's a few other points that are worth mentioning about where she uh, bemoans when we're talking about um, the kind of horizontal integration in the industry, where Amazon ends up outcompeting its competitors, uh, how very few competitors she thinks are left. She says in the ebook market, for instance, only Apple is left as a purveyor of ebooks. But that's a big only, right? Apple is a behemoth. Uh, it's, it's a major competitor uh, to Amazon. And you know, plenty of reserves uh, to to go into economic battle. Um, she talks about how when there was once another uh, Amazon.com style competitor called Jet.com, that doesn't exist anymore because Walmart bought it. But Walmart is a major competitor to Amazon too, and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. Um, that was th those are with regard to what you might call horizontal integration. But Ankar, there's some other useful points I think to comment on with regard to what she calls, or what they call vertical integration. And that's when a company doesn't just eliminate its competitors, but where it starts to buy uh, all of the entities that contribute to its supply chain. How does that come up in the con argument? Yeah, so what she's trying to do, I think, is to portray how big Amazon is, and then that it's ominous that it's so big. So vertical integration is it's, it has its foot in all kinds of different industries or markets. Now, it's often arbitrary how that is carved up, and we could talk about that. So even for publishing, if you ask more broadly, is it easier than ever for an author to get his words published and reach a large audience? I think it's clear that it's easier than ever. Um, and that's facilitated in part by Amazon and facilitated by its vertical integration. So the vertical integration is um, look at the how dominant the Amazon marketplace is. So it's not just Amazon now selling its own products, but everybody wants to use Amazon's marketplace because of its reach, its ease of use, its massive customer base. Then it's also many third parties are using um, its shipping and packaging uh, services to get their goods out. So it's what it's portraying is, well, look, everybody has to use Amazon's services in some way. So it's not that it's in so many markets, but given that it, it's, um, its dominance from sort of point of sale to all the infrastructure that goes into that, and that includes now with um, the internet making up more and more of a company's uh, portion of sales and revenue, it includes the fact that Amazon is the biggest player in cloud computing services so that all kinds of websites run on Amazon's servers. All that is taken as, well, there's something wrong with this. Rather than thinking of it as it's providing a tremendous service here, all kinds of companies are using this because it enables them to grow their business. So the fact that companies can use this cloud computing services, the fact that so many third parties can use Amazon's marketplace and reach customers that they couldn't before makes um, production grow. And it increases also, which isn't obvious, but it increases the division of labor. If you have some niche business and you're located in Spokane, Washington, and your market just is, the people in Spokane, it's often you can't sustain that business. It's too, you may, you make, I don't know, specialized dolls for kids. 
And there's not enough of a market in the city where you live to sustain that business. But if you can get onto Amazon, and now your market includes the whole of the US or maybe the whole of the world, you now can sustain a business that you couldn't before. It's part of why the, these companies are, and third parties are using Amazon services. So rather than thinking of it, like why are people using this? Why are people trading with Amazon? What are they getting out of it? It's the, there's this portrayal of, of look how big Amazon is and this kind of concentration of services like, isn't there something ominous about that? And it, it, when, you add, when you look at like, what exactly is going wrong, you don't get very many specifics. This is what you said before about, like, where's the proof of this? There's not much. There, it's relying on, yeah, we know big is bad. And so there's got to be something going bad here. Yeah, what do you make of the kind of economic arguments that are sometimes offered in advance of this kind of position? Because there are places, for instance, in footnotes in her paper where she cites different studies that say that in certain industries in certain times, when a particular company has had the you know, dominant market share, uh, the prices did end up going up uh, somewhat. Uh, is, this a, is there a valid economic issue here? No the and what this relies on so when there's the appeal to the kind of economic framework what it relies on is a model of competition that is completely artificial or artificial is too charitable it's a fantasy um so they, they have an image of what a competitive industry looks like and it's an image where there's no dominant players there's no dominant companies or businesses Every businessman is what they call a price taker. So the market tells them what to do, what, how to set their prices and so on. They play no active role. That's their fantasy for this is when markets working properly. And then they look at most markets and indeed it's, you can focus on Amazon and so on, but almost every industry is like this. They have a few dominant players. Um, they look at that and say, well, this is nothing like our fantasy and criticize it because it doesn't live up to the fantasy. And what became clearer or more clear to me in reading Khan's paper is the, because she stresses that the old antitrust looked at things in a broader framework. It included not just economic, but political considerations, including considerations about, um, people who have uh, influence over elections and things like that, that we don't want them to. So it, it harkens back to the, what we now think of campaign finance. That, there's an element of that in her paper. And the model of competition is described as it's impersonal market forces. And the impersonal is the crucial there. Their fantasy is a market in which businessmen play no role. And why is it do they, that they don't want businessmen to play a role? Because their conception of a businessman is rightly that he's motivated by profit and self-interest. But for them, that means he's either exploiting and stealing from people or he's going to do that at any moment. And that's what we have to stop. So their image of what the, how, how a market should function I think is completely anti-economic, but there's a reason for it. It's what they, their fantasy is, 
the self-interest of a businessman has no role. And this model that you're speaking of, this is what economists call the perfect competition model. Is that right? Yes. That's, that's clarifying. Uh, since that model, uh, as you said, relegates businessmen to a sort of passive robotic function um, and elevates other kinds of concerns and values, uh, what, what is the nature of the value they want to uphold? Um, maybe it's worth saying something here about uh, the public interest concept that is often brought in uh, as the standard. And uh, one thing that strikes me about uh, uh, this issue is that uh, you know the one could argue that the the advocates of the old uh, consumer welfare standard, if anybody was going to be able to identify something like the public interest, well, looking at the efficient allocation of resources in a market might be something like that. But the the new antitrust advocates don't don't agree with that. Instead, it looks like they're identifying the public interest with their favored, the interests of their favored parties. So if the mom and pa store down the street gets shut down because it's not, uh, it can't compete with Amazon, or if these niche titles in the publishing industry get, uh, can't find a publisher, that's what they count as, as infringing against the public interest. And do you agree with that? Is that, is that kind of the, the dynamic here in, in the way they use this standard? Yes. I think it goes wider, though. I think it goes also to the um, arguments about economic efficiency. And, and I think, it, so there's an interesting philosophical lesson here, and a lesson Ayn Rand pointed out often, and I think this is another instance of it, that if you don't oppose wrong legislation, wrong principles or evil principles, at a fundamental level, you're reinforcing certain ideas and premises that are at the root of these principles, and they will rear their head again. So the pushback against antitrust was about, well, no, we need to calculate economic efficiency, which really is just another way of saying the public interest. But the way to think about the public interest is low prices, um, mass markets, and so on. So when we see big companies doing that, as Facebook is or Google is, we have no concern. And we, we should think, no, they're fulfilling the public interest. This is efficient. From some, but it's always some kind of attempt at a collectivist calculation. So it's not efficient because people are voluntarily buying their services, and it's all trades. And it's the responsibility of each party and each individual in a trade to decide, like, is this really beneficial? Am I benefiting? Am I getting something of more value in return for what I'm giving up? And whether that giving up is personal information, um, what tracking things I do on the internet and so on. It's, this is all a trade. Everybody knows when you go to Facebook or you go to Google, they work by ads. So in some sense, they're tracking what you do and trying to deliver uh, ads that are going to appeal to you so that you buy services and so that advertisers um, buy ads on their platforms and so on. Everybody knows that. And in, it's always to have a perspective. Yeah, we don't care about two individuals in a trade and if they both think we're benefiting. There's some outside collective perspective is, is the public better off? 
And the economic argument was, yeah, if the prices are low, the public's better off. And what Khan now is pushing is, no, that's relevant, but it's not all there is to thinking about the public interest. And how do you think about the public interest? As you said, it ends up being the, what I think the public should want and therefore we should force on them. So if I think like publishing should look different than how it does under Amazon, we should force the Amazon to stop doing what they're doing, force people to stop trading with Amazon and have different, um, try to have different outcomes. So the public interest always means that I, a bureaucrat, gets to override people's voluntary decisions. And I get to decide that I'm going to elevate some people as the public and other people as not the public who are going to be sacrificed. And as you said, like it can be, it can manifest in all kinds of ways. It can be mom and pop operations. Oh, you're the public, Amazon's not. So we're going to penalize Amazon in order to prop you up. Or it's booksellers who we think the books should sell more. So you're the public. And the people who are benefiting from Amazon, you're not the public. So we're going to penalize you. That's how it always works. And it has to work. I think we should also spend some time talking about the issue of competition, the concept of competition, because the value of competition is one of the things that's asserted and invoked in the name of this uh, antitrust litigation and, le and legislation. And one of the things I thought was very interesting about the Khan paper was in arguing for her position, one of the ways that she tries to dismiss this consumer welfare standard is to do something you don't often see uh, uh, law professors in her tradition doing, uh, which is to invoke legislative intent. Uh, she talks about how at the time that the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed, prices were actually stable or slowly decreasing in major industries. That's a direct quote from her. And so part of what she's saying is it wasn't really about uh, protecting uh, prices or the consumer in that respect. Instead, it was about a kind of singular desire to restrict so-called anti-competitive behavior and protect uh, competition, the value of competition. This kind of unconditional value of competitions sort of treated as an axiom in a lot of this argumentation. I think it's worth pausing and asking some questions about that too, because uh, why treat it as this unalloyed, uh, unvarnished value uh, outside of any context? I mean, if you look up the word competition in the Oxford English Dictionary, here's the uh, definition they give you. I think it's pretty good. It says, to strive with others in the production and sale of commodities or command of the market. And one thing I think occurs to me here is that if what you have is a real competition, then that presupposes the possibility of actually attaining what it is you're striving for. If you're striving you know, against others to be the one to produce and sell goods, then for there to be an actual competition, uh, an actual economic competition in this case, it needs to be that it's possible for you to actually win the competition. Uh, and so that's what's so strange to me about the allegation that somebody like Amazon is somehow anti-competitive. What the way I would classify them is that they are outstanding competitors. Uh, but if you keep in mind that competition implies the possibility of winning at that competition. So they've competed against thousands of rival e-commerce firms. They've figured out all kinds of innovative ways to fulfill products, to 
keep inventory, transportation, delivery, cloud computing, customer service. They've even uh, created whole new products. Uh, and so in many respects, they have won uh, the latest round of competition. Now, of course, in a real economy, there's never a final round. It's always ongoing and there are new competitors who could always emerge. But if that's what competition is, seems Amazon's doing it, um, what is so valuable about competition that some of these theorists and politicians think that for some reason, Amazon needs to be restrained in the name of the value of competition? I think part of what's going on is there's an equivocation. So if you ask the question, is competition a value? I think the answer is no, not really. Um, what, but if you ask it, is freedom of competition a value? Then I think, yes, the, the answer is, but the, what they equivocate on is between freedom of competition and an actual competition, which for them means there has to be a lot of small players doing stuff no one's too big, no one's winning. So it's the process, what they're focused on and not, well, but it's a process towards a certain goal and the goal is production. And what you care about is if you live in an, in a, in a, an economy and a country in which progress is possible, that as people think about new things to produce or better ways to produce the things we're producing, they're free to do so. That's what you care about. And if they're free to do so, when someone figures out a way to outcompete Amazon in certain areas, they will do so. And they have the freedom to implement their business strategy, to try to raise capital, to access, uh, uh, access isn't the right word, to raise capital, to uh, float stock, and so on. That is, they have the freedom to trade and to convince people that they've got a better idea and a better strategy. And so they're free to compete. So that's a valuable a value. And there's all kinds of countries in which freedom of competition is either uh, restricted or eliminated. And if you look across American industry, there's industries in which the freedom of competition is much less, and there's industries in which it's much greater. And the tech industry up to now, and this is one of what is so ominous about the antitrust the new push for antitrust is that we're going to take the industry that is perhaps the freest, and that is the freedom of competition is the greatest in the tech industry, because there's so few times comparatively when businesses have to go to bureaucrats and ask permission. Am I allowed to do this? Can I buy this company? Can I engage in this strategy? Or will you guys deem this anti-competitive and I can't do it? In contrast, say, to the financial sector or the healthcare sector, which are heavily controlled, which means freedom of competition is much less. And we have all kinds of problems, um, including, say, in the finance. I was reading recently about the ways in which China is outcompeting in the financial payment category. And it's because US companies, it's not that they couldn't, function, couldn't compete, they're stopped by US regulators from doing all kinds of things. And as a result, where there seems actually to be more freedom in a, in a certain way in China, the companies are able to grow and offer services that the US can't. So freedom of competition is a value, but freedom of competition does not mean that there has to be a hundred players in a market or so on. It just means the best can win. And if the best is like in the restaurant industry where you have all kinds of different restaurants serving different foods and so on, 
if that's what consumers want and are willing to pay for, that's what you see. And if in other industries like search, Google dominates, um, that is what uh, individuals want and are ready to pay for. And it's not that uh, there's lack of freedom of competition. I think your point about what they mean by competition as some preconceived notion that there have to be lots of small players, which isn't really what competition means, uh, but that's what they mean by it. I think that's important and that's gonna connect to an issue we'll discuss shortly about, about their real motives. Um, but before we do that, I thought it would be worth on this point, uh, reading a quick passage from Ayn Rand on this issue, uh, the major article where she talks about uh, antitrust is America's persecuted minority big business. And we'll give information on that later. But here's a line from that essay on this exact issue. She says, there's no way to legislate competition. There are no standards by which one could define who should compete with whom, how many competitors should exist in any given field, what should be their relative strength for their so-called relevant markets, what prices they should charge, what methods of competition are fair or unfair. None of these can be answered because these precisely are the questions that can be answered only by the mechanism of a free market. Um, and of course, as you suggest, Ankar, what they're really proposing with uh, the, this push for antitrust is, is to eliminate free competition. If you eliminate free competition, you then eliminate that market. You don't let the market decide these kinds of questions about the value of goods and services that really only it uh, can decide. And it's worth highlighting. Uh, so this comes up, uh, it's not a major focus in Khan's paper on Amazon, but she highlights that Uber is in certain ways like Amazon. And Uber is, it's interesting to think of from the perspective of freedom of competition. So Uber came into various cities and is offering ride sharing services. In various ways, there were reasons to think this is probably illegal. That given the laws on the books and the grants of a monopoly power to taxis, which means you buy permission from the government to run a taxi, government decides how many taxis there, so how many permissions it will issue in a city, and you'll be locked up if you don't, haven't bought permission from government but want to offer someone a ride and pay and offer this as a service. And, and Uber came in and was willing, in effect, to operate in a kind of gray area, that it wasn't clear if it's really legal. But once our services operate and people see how good it is, there'll be a push from people in the city to say, no, but we like this service, so maybe the laws should be changed. And her, rather than her thinking, yeah, the problem is that government has stopped freedom of competition that it said taxis can operate, you've got our permission, no one else can. Rather than seeing that as the problem, the problem's Uber, who's now getting such a big market share and so on. And that's part of the, what the end result of this kind of equivocation is. When there's actual impediments to competition, they don't care. And when they see someone who's um, operating really well, that's a problem. But the equivocations don't stop there. Uh, as, uh, as Ron Popeil, late Ron Popeil used to say, but wait, there's more. Uh, some of the ideas that are also invoked uh, in order to defend this push for antitrust include concepts of power, monopoly, freedom, 
and all these get equivocated about too, and we need to talk about these too. So uh, part of the reason why they are so concerned to preserve this artificial so-called competition where there's a lot of little players is because they say there's something problematic with the consolidation of economic power in and of itself. And I think we need to get clear what we're talking about when we're talking about power on car. There's, there's economic power, uh, but there's a question, what's the problem with economic power? Why do they think there's a problem with consolidation of economic power? It's again, it relies on an equivocation. So the term, the, the terms Ayn Rand uses are economic power and political power. The terms more often used and used in Khan's paper are market power, which I think is basically a synonym for economic power, and then political power. And to call them forms of power, so there's something right about that. The, the for, power is the ability to get something done. Um, but they're radically different as forms of power. And you can't move from, well, a concentration of political power is a problem, therefore a concentration of market power is a problem. And the reason they're fundamentally different is that market power, economic power, flows from a positive. And this, again, is what Ayn Rand, she stressed that if you make this distinction, it changes how you look at all these things, including antitrust. So if you grasp that Amazon's power, it has power. I mean, you talked at the start of the podcast about the profits and money Amazon has made has enabled Bezos to start a whole space company. It's like, that's power. He's getting things done. So it, there's no point in trying to say, well, it's not really power. But the power that it is, is a positive. He offered people a service and asked people, do you want to buy it? Do you want to pay for this? And if you don't, you don't. You don't have to shop on Amazon. You don't have to sign up for Amazon Prime. But if you find it valuable, then this is what I'm selling. And people, both obviously in the US and across the world, have found it tremendously valuable. So the power that he gets and is, and is building and creating is a positive power. It makes your life better. It doesn't stop you from doing anything. It makes all kinds of new opportunities possible, new trades possible. Political power is the opposite. Political power is the power to stop you from doing things. It's to fine you, to imprison you, and uh, if you've got the death penalty, to kill you in certain circumstances. It's the power to use the gun or the fist against someone. It's not offering a positive. It doesn't pretend that it's offering a positive. That when you put someone, when you stop a thief, it's not, oh, I'm making your life better. No, I'm putting an end to your activity because you should not be able to engage in theft or fraud or robbery. And so, so it's again a power, but it's a power to stop. Not, it's not a positive power. That power, political power is important, but it should be only used against people who are actually trespassing on your freedom and rights. And so the idea of, of if you say like you're worried about the concentration of political power, that's like the concentration in a, in a dictator, like in North Korea, that now the power to use the gun is vested in one individual who can use it on his whim. Yeah, that's a huge problem. It, there's no parallel to that, to Bezos becoming a billionaire and the idea that, oh, now all, he can force us around like a dictator. That's, it's just, it, 
It's not true. And indeed, it's a crazy view if you think that, if that's your relationship to Jeff Bezos. I think part of the reason why it's crazy is because not recognizing this distinction between economic and political power is erasing a distinction between a really fundamental metaphysical, between two fundamental metaphysical categories. And this cuts to the core of Ayn Rand's views of metaphysics. There's a difference between exercising power over nature and exercising power over people. One of them means uh, discovering what's true, figuring out how to use cause and effect to achieve your desired ends. And the other means, uh, it means, it means shackling someone's mind or destroying someone's mind, their ability to make choices. Um, and the fact that this equivocation gets its power at all from the idea that everybody knows that political power can be abused, I think is ironic in a way, because when that equivocation is used on behalf of antitrust, what it does is then to actually concentrate political power in the form of the government, giving them extraordinary power over people's lives. And that's exactly what you see happening now, especially when you look at this new Biden administration executive order, which is, which is, which is proposing to massively expand the power of government uh, in the name of assuring some kind of fair competition. Khan herself in her paper, uh, right after she's done lamenting all of the consolidation of power on behalf of Amazon, even, I mean, she has two proposals at the end of the paper about what should be done. One is break Amazon up into lots of little different components. Then the other one is let's leave it how it is, but make it a government uh, utility, uh, regulate it like the electric company. Uh, and that's then increasing, that's, that's actually creating uh, a consolidation of political power. I mean, so the, the position is incoherent uh, on the face of it. Um, yeah, or but I, or at least it, what it because this will lead into I think our final point. Or at least what it should suggest is what is really driving this. So if it's a worry about the concentration of power, how does that how is that solved if you give government all the power? And so I think there is an answer to the way that they think about it. But so from one perspective, it just seems. This doesn't make any sense. From another perspective, I think it does make sense, but it makes their view much worse than you might think at first glance. But that kind of question is, if, if the problem really is some kind of concentration in power, how do you solve it by giving a, it uh, the chair of the FTC all kinds of power to, to control Amazon and Facebook and so on? That's a solution? Yeah, we should get to that soon. But before we do, did you want to talk any more about the the way they claim uh, using that kind of political power to end anti-competitive practices in some way or another promotes their idea of economic liberty? Well, it that goes back, I think, to so it's for sure part of how they're framing it is this protects people's liberty or protects people's rights. And in Khan's paper, she quotes. Sherman from the passage of the of the 1890 Sherman Act, where um, he he says, uh, so she quotes him uh, she, that he called it, quote, a bill of rights, a charter of liberty. And then she goes on in her own words to say that, so what he was stressing, it's political 
importance. And then her summary is, in other words, what was at stake in keeping markets uh, open and keeping them free from industrial monarchs was freedom. So the, the and it, I think it relates to their perspective on competition to that what freedom amounts to is a, uh, in a certain way, what it amounts to in the end is you're not subject to competition. So part of the pure competition model is that nobody really makes any decisions. It's everybody's passive and a price taker and the market's telling you what to do. And everything then as a result will go on for the same, in the same way, year after year, decade after decade. There's no um, kind of conception even of where innovation and production comes from. And so the, it is true in a, um, market economy. So part of what actual freedom means, it's all they, they're all freedoms of action. It's a freedom to think, a freedom to produce, a freedom to trade. You're going to have continuously changing environment. Um, that's what progress means. It means like uh, Microsoft will be a dominant company for a while and then Apple will figure out ways in which to have even better products and take um, business away from Microsoft. And Microsoft has to regroup and think what they're going to do. And then Google comes along and then Facebook and then Google tries to see, can we get Google plus that will compete with Facebook? We can't do it. And so, and a market never stands still and a proper conception of freedom is, yeah, no, I can't demand that my way of life stay the same. And if I run a mom and pop store that I should be able to run that store for 30 years or 50 years and people want to compete and offer something different and so on. Well, they, they can do it so long as they don't put me out of business. And so none of that is a proper conception of freedom, but that's part of their model. And it's part of them thinking of, yeah, we're protecting the freedom of the little guy and so on. And what that means is they're trying to isolate them from competition and from the responsibilities of what freedom and a free market actually require of someone. They require you to think, to adapt, to progress, to move. That idea, that that distortion, that distorted notion of freedom, uh, is what gets called the divine right of stagnation in an essay in *The Virtue of Selfishness*, which, uh, by by Ayn Rand, you might want to take a look at. Ankar, did you want to say any more about the concept of monopoly, or given the time, should we move on to the uh, the real I, I motive? Think we should move on. If we have a question about it, we could take it up then. Okay. So, if there are all these distortions behind the the stated justification for antitrust policy, uh, and because they're distortions, they're hard to make sense of on their own terms. As you were suggesting, when something appears incoherent, it suggests there's really something underneath it driving it. I think that's the issue we should talk about now. And what I find very interesting about, uh, it's actually the thing I find the most interesting about the Khan paper as, a, as uh, a document that helps reveal the motive of this policy is that whenever she's trying to argue why modern the modern interpretation of antitrust law is behind the times, why it hasn't kept up with the latest facts on the ground about the digital economy. The thing that she constantly does is to point how point to how a company like Amazon is different from traditional businesses because it has so many different ways new ways, innovative ways, attracting, retaining customers, out-competing its rivals, 
uh, increasing market share. And this is all offered as a criticism. This is all offered as this is the problem with Amazon. But if you think about what that really means, uh, in light of all of the different ways in which Amazon has attracted customers, the reasons it's retained them, the reason that the customers like it, the reason that they've chosen it over the rivals that have been outcompeted, is because it's, it's another way of saying, Amazon's better. And so she's criticizing it for being better. And the, the thing in the article that really got me in this respect was something that comes up right near the beginning, uh, where she talks about how, it's, how the company's been able to do all of this, quote, as if Bezos charted the company's growth by first drawing a map of antitrust laws and then devising routes to smoothly bypass them. With its missionary zeal for consumers, Amazon's march toward monopoly by singing the tune of contemporary antitrust. So in other words, it's not just the fact that they're better at producing, better at uh, outcompeting their rivals. They're even better at evading these arbitrary laws. And that really gets her. Uh, and where the evading of the laws that we're talking about here is simply not violating them uh, to the best of their ability in light of the you know, contemporary interpretation of what the laws mean. Uh, and I'm sure you'll have more to say about this too, Ankar, but I, I did want to put up a quote on the screen from that same essay by Ayn Rand that we were uh, talking about before, America's Persecuted Minority Big Business, where she identifies the underlying motive of these laws, which I think all of these facts about Khan's uh, proposal brings out. Rand says, there's only one meaning and purpose these laws could have, whether their authors intended it or not the penalizing of ability for being ability, the penalizing of success for being success, and the sacrifice of productive genius to the demands of envious mediocrity, uh, that uh, divine right of stagnation idea. So Ankar, any further thoughts on this point, this issue? Yes, so the what you brought up from the Khan's article stood out to me as well, that it's, they, Bezos bypassing antitrust laws means he complied. That is, he followed the law. That's what it actually means. And there is such a hatred projected for uh, success and for ability, as you stressed, that what she singles out about Amazon is how innovative it has been. And what she in effect is focused on is it's not just innovative in that it can charge such low prices and so on, but it's innovative in the way it's structured its businesses. And so the, the focus on vertical integration and horizontal integration is an awareness of Amazon's doing things in these areas that are innovative. And there's an issue then of there's a whole perspective in the paper and I think in the push for antitrust and you see this in the congressional hearings and you see this from both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans. And indeed, if you think there's some independence, you see it from independence as well. It's how dare you wield power? It's we should be the ones wielding power. And when you've got people stressing, so not stressing, there should be freedom. There should be freedom for the individuals to choose to judge and operate when it becomes, we want to control things. And the, so the real problem is with Amazon is we don't have enough control over you. 
we should be able to control you. Why? Because we didn't create Amazon. Jeff Bezos should not be able to run Amazon. Why? Because he created it. That's the whole message that you're getting from this. Um, and it, when you've got kind of a, a whole lineup of bureaucrats claiming we need wider powers, there you're in the, uh, I think you're in an environment in which what is motivating people is the desire to tear things down and to destroy and not to build things up. And if you're stressing, look how great a builder Amazon is. Look how great a creator or producer. We need to tear them down or we need to limit them or control them. The motive, that is not a healthy motivation. Indeed, I think as Ayn Rand stressed, it's the least healthiest or evilest motivation you can have to look at things to acknowledge they're valuable, successful, productive, and want to stop them because they're valuable, successful, productive. And that's the meaning, the ultimate meaning of this new revival of antitrust. I think that's a good note to end on for today. Uh, should we go to questions? Sure. So we got a super chat question. Uh, asking, and I think we sort of already answered it, but maybe there's uh, a little bit more to say, how much is antitrust based on envy and power lust? And I think a lot of what you just spoke to addresses that question. Do you want to expand any more? I would, I would expand in this way. When there is some economic confusion, I think when you look, when it's passed in 1890, the Sherman Antitrust Act, they, they don't know what competition means. To, I'm not convinced the whole passage of it was all motivated by envy and powerless, though I think that is part of the motivation, but there's other things going on as well. But when it becomes clear in practice that this legislation and the body of antitrust laws is used almost exclusively to target the best companies in the United States, and that starts with uh, Standard Oil, but it go, I mean, Alcoa, IBM, GE, all the leading lights of American industry are being targeted. When you see, start to see that and you don't think, oh, we've got to repeal this legislation, but either we need to keep enforcing it or get more antitrust legislation, or now we need to put more teeth into this, it's, you don't no longer have an excuse that I was confused about what competition means or something like that. I think that also answers a Zoom question that came in. How does the new antitrust compare to the origins of the antitrust movement? So I think it sounds like part of what you're saying, Ankar, is that uh, there may have been some of this motivation back then, but, but perhaps less of it because of the different kinds of confusions. And now there's less excuse for the confusion because we have a whole, the whole history of 100 years of enforcement, uh, seeing what it's, been, what it's targeted, what it hasn't targeted. Um, one thing I would add there as another possible source of confusion, and this picks up on a thread that we were hoping to come back to, is confusion about the concept of monopoly. Uh, because the allegation here is that a company like Amazon in uh, gaining an increasing market share is thereby becoming a monopolist. And there is a kind of monopoly uh, that uh, I think people rightly worry about. And if that's what Amazon were, then you can see why you would want to stop it. But it's not because they're confused. It, there is such a thing as a government monopoly. 
where a government grants exclusive franchise to some uh, designated party, gives them exclusive permission to operate uh, in a certain kind of industry. Uh, for example, in the way certain kinds of railroads uh, were set up, such as I think the, uh, the Union Pacific uh, during the 19th century. And that leads to actual concentrations of political power and uh, abuses that stem from it. And people weren't clear uh, about the difference between government monopoly and actual uh, market dominance in a free market in the 19th century in the same way that they weren't clear about the difference between political and economic power. And indeed, there have been all kinds of abuses and corruptions associated with government-granted monopolies over the years, uh, on down to today with the, uh, with the uh, uh, internet service providers that are given a franchise by local governments. Nobody likes to work with them. You can't pick competitors, et cetera. You're legally not permitted to, uh, to get a competitor in a case like that. It, you, did you want to expand any more on the issue of monopoly there and confusions that it causes? I'll just make one other point, which is to go back to the issue of competition and the value of competition. The, to differentiate between when you have one seller and it's a problem. So if monopoly means one seller in some way of defining a market, and is it not a problem? It's the real issue is, is there freedom of competition? Not can I find a competitor, but are other businesses and individuals free to compete? That is, if they could figure out a way to offer a rival service that people would pay for, can they do that? Or are they prevented by government? And that's why it, it's you have to conceptualize it as what's important is freedom of competition, not number of competitors that I can identify. Yeah, another example of this that often gets thrown into the mix when people argue for antitrust is they'll point to uh, AT&T Bell System in the United States uh, prior to the early 1990s uh, and the lack of innovation that occurred. But what they forget was that, that that was itself a legal monopoly where no one was allowed to sell telephones or to build rival telephone networks until that monopoly was ended. I mean, there were literally like three different kinds of telephones that you could buy in the United States. I remember each one. Uh, and then that monopoly was ended. Um, and, and I think rightly so. Uh, we have uh, another question, I think. Um, uh, does Ayn Rand's essay, The Age of Envy, uh, have anything to do with what's going on and driving the hatred? Now, that's we've, we've touched a little bit on the idea of hatred for ability, but it, maybe it's worth saying a word or two just about that essay, which we didn't mention previously. Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, it's it's an essay that you can find in her book, Return of the Primitive. It's uh, she argues that there's a there's a distinctive kind of hatred, where it's not hatred for the fact that somebody else has something that I don't have, even because I'd like to get it too. Rather, it's hatred for the fact that they're good, hatred for the fact that they have ability. Uh, she calls it hatred of the good for being good. And yes, I think if, if people want to know more about the, the, the psychology of the kind of hatred we've been talking about today, uh, uh, independently of some of the kinds of political considerations we've been talking about, looking at the age of envy is a good place to go. Do you see we any other, other questions? Yeah, I was one from you two, which is um, what of competition between countries? 
Does that end when one, in quote, wins? What would that victory, in, again, in quotes, look like? So this, it's important to get that when we're talking about competition in an economy, it means competition among producers. There's not losers in that sense. Competition means you're trying to produce, you're producing something, you're trading. Even if a business doesn't win a customer and so on, what's happening in the economy, if you look at economy-wide and over time, is we get better and better. We're producing more and more. And if you get, if you're a mom and pop restaurant that gets put out of business or you run a little store and Walmart puts you out of business, you have all kinds of other things you can do. You can join Walmart and be hired by Walmart. You can go into other industries, the new industries, like the whole new internet industries that have arisen in the last 30 years and all kinds of jobs that didn't exist before. So it's an upward uh, trajectory that the production overall is getting better. Pe individuals, people's ability to produce gets better and better. Um, this is part of what we were talking about in regard to Amazon, that there's all kinds of third-party sellers on it that now can run businesses that weren't viable before. So there's not winners and losers in the sense if loser means I'm worse off. In individual trades and individual industries, you can say, well, one company's growing and another shrinking. But if you take the wider perspective, anyone who's willing to think and willing to change, so which is part of thinking, can progress and does progress in a market economy. That, when you're looking across nations, that's true when the nations are free and peaceful. The citizens are trading with one another and everybody's getting better. And even, and I mean, this is this has long been worked out in economics, that even if one country, the people are more productive in every industry, there's still all kinds of opportunities for trade because they'll be relatively more productive in some industries. And even though in some sense more productive, relatively less in other industries. So trade occurs and everybody wins. Now, if you mean competition among countries between like America and Soviet Russia, where one's trying to kill you, then it is a win and lose. And it's if you'd, you would have to arm yourself militarily, sometimes have to go to war, though you try to make it that you're strong enough that you will not be threatened and people will not try to take you on. But that is, and that is a zero sum game in the sense that if you don't protect yourself, they're going to kill you. But that, so you have to distinguish between enemy countries that are out to use and initiate force against you and peaceful countries in which you trade. And there's not losers in that sense. I see one more question that I wanted to comment on quickly and it might not be obvious at first what's significant about it, but I think it is. Someone on YouTube asked, is it important that companies label what's in their products for safety at least? Uh, and what I think this gets to is the issue of uh, honesty versus fraud in a free market. And I do think that one of the proper functions of government, I mean, if you wanna say that there's a function in ensuring fair competition, if that means anything, what it means is that uh, it should protect the rights of all traders, which includes protecting them against force and against fraud. So you, it's a form of the use of force, an indirect use of force to use fraud in a free market and to say that you're giving, uh, that you're selling some product 
when it's not really what you're delivering. And something that's interesting about the Federal Trade Commission is that one of the things that it's supposed to be charged with doing, in addition to antitrust action, is protecting consumers against fraud. Um, in a recent hearing uh, before Congress, uh, Lena Khan opened by talking about the huge upsurge in fraud that we've seen, especially since COVID, with people offering uh, various kinds of bogus cures. And she argues for how the FTC needs more resources in order to combat this kinds of fraud. And that's something where I think government does have a proper role. But now think about, well, what if government were to actually take the resources that it devotes to destroying productive ability by means of antitrust uh, and divert them instead to doing something like its proper job, which is to protect against fraud, to prosecute uh, fraudulent businesses, to try to track down all these uh, scammers, I mean, we would have much less to deal with. And that's especially because of the fact that so much of the fraud happens from small players, uh, fly-by-night uh, nobodies, who they're not paying attention to because they think that the big problems come from the big companies. Uh, and it's, it, it's so people end up getting built uh, by hundreds of fly-by-night fraudsters because the main resources and attention of the government is distracted by this completely invalid purpose uh, of, of, of going after the, the productive people who are actually honest. Um, as to whether that means companies should actually label what's in their products and to what extent, that's a kind of complicated uh, question, but they, they certainly shouldn't be able to tell lies about what they're selling you. That, that is fraud. Any, any final thoughts on that? No, I think that's good. And we're over the hour, so we probably... Yeah, you're right. So yeah, let's wrap up with a few notes on uh, what people can expect from us next. So we're going to be, uh, right after this podcast, heading to Clubhouse to have a discussion of the same topic. So if you'd like to ask more questions or talk about what we've been talking about today, uh, please download the Clubhouse app. Uh, that's available now for everybody on Apple and Android. And I think you don't even need an invitation anymore. You can just download it for free and, uh, and join us on the Ayn Rand Club. Um, here's also some information about resources that you can check out if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today. We talked about, in particular, Ayn Rand's essay, America's Persecuted Minority, Big Business. That's in her in her uh, volume called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. There's also a, a shorter essay it focuses more on the issue of antitrust. Actually, I think it contains a lot of the same material from America's Persecuted Minority that's in her book, The Voice of Reason. That's her essay, Antitrust, the Rule of Unreason. And I think we, we saw uh, ways in which uh, there's an a, uh, uh, air of unreason uh, that spreads throughout arguments for antitrust today. Uh, also some previews about what's coming on our agenda next week. Our podcast next week uh, will be on uh, a, a slightly different topic, Ayn Rand's Repudiation of the United Nations. I should note that this is going to be happening at a special time. Uh, instead of our usual time slot on Wednesday, this will be occurring on the same time slot, but on Tuesday. So that's Tuesday, August 10th, Ayn Rand's Repudiation of the UN. That will be with Agostino Vergara-Seed and Ilan Giorno. Uh, and if you liked our program today and you'd like to be able to follow us in the future, if you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe, uh, to like this video, uh, to comment on it. If you're watching the recording, that helps optimize the algorithm so you'll get notifications from us in the future and so that we'll get more followers like you. Uh, 
Uh, also on Facebook, same idea. Like this episode, comment on it, share it with your friends. And if you have questions about things that came up today, please consider shooting us an email at newideal at Or You can also suggest new topics for future episodes, ask questions that you'd like us to answer. We read all of these and we try to answer as many of the emails as we can. And sometimes we also do new shows that are inspired by suggestions from our audience. Um, that is all that I had to announce today. So thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having this conversation with me, Ankar. And we Thanks, will we will Thanks. now move we will now move to Clubhouse. So see everyone there. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.